And if they're at all happy where they are and what they've become, from selling out to doubling down, let's talk punk rock business and what happens when the two get all mixed up. Here is your host, Bill Florio. All right, this is Bill Florio. Yo, this is MC Charlie Boswell. Hey, everyone, it's Dave Harrison. Hey, it's Jesse Cannon. All right, now today on Killed by a Desk, we have Brooks Headley. He is the You sound a little boring on that. <laughs> Killed by... <laughs> Brooks is the proprietor of Superiority Burger, uh, which sounds like a Gorilla Biscuits song to me. <laughs> I think that's the point. So, what did you guys think of this one? Hope they don't taste like Gorilla Biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> Were Gorilla Biscuits a real thing? Is that a real food? No, I don't. I don't think so. They don't serve alcohol there, right? They don't serve alcohol there. That's right. I do have to say there was an exorbitant amount of mentions of the Flex Your Head compilation, so I feel like that definitely has to be uh, uh, the soundtrack for this episode. That sounds good. It's not a bad record. You know, it's funny. Like for how punk I am, I don't think I've heard any of these classic comps that we talk about because I hated compilations so much. That was pretty good. That's you've you've heard every song on that separately for sure but so brooks was in born against wrangler brutes he was in all these bands with either sam and or adam bill you remember that time we played with born against and we opened up for cape fear with robert de niro that's right and we and we drew more people i, than I did mention that show because brooks told me about he he took one of those shirts home and his mom saw it i don't know if you remember those t-shirts but it had like a cruiser with like something really big stuck out of his pants and we, we saw like 14 year olds buying them in bulk and we knew they all just got thrown out so if you have one of those shirts it's probably worth a lot of money it's an amazing <laughs> shirt I, I had to google it as a huge born against fan i was like oh i wonder if i should get a born against shirt for my 42 year old self and then i saw that design and decided i was not going to do it <laughs> I I, I sure as hell didn't take one. So Jesse decided on a tattoo instead, so stay tuned for that photo. You, you've got a born against tattoo? Uh, no, but I do have a good born against story that I used to have a sticker of them in my car, and a cop pulled me over one time, and he comes over, he goes, born against. I usually see that one next to bad cop, no donut. And I said, <laughs> and I, said I don't know why, they're a Christian band. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is a fun episode. It is a fun episode. I'll say for me, this is the first one we've done where I've liked the person's music work and their professional work. All right. So, Brooks, we usually start this out where you introduce yourself and what you do. Okay. My name is Brooks Headley. I am the chef, owner, operator of a ridiculous six-seat restaurant in East Village called Superiority Burger. I've also been in a bunch of really ridiculous, stupid bands over the years, too. Cool. So the restaurant industry is, at least on television, notoriously a tough business. Is that true? And why do you do what you do? I just love cooking. It's always kind of been my favorite thing, even before I did it professionally. I've actually never felt that working in a restaurant was 
particularly taxing physically. A lot of people seem to think that. Um, I just lo- I love every second of it. And even even now, when during the pandemic, when things are really fucked up, like. But even when I started doing it, and I started working in restaurants in like 1999, like it's always kind of been this thing that getting big boxes of amazing product and chopping it down and making making it smaller and then dipping it up and cooking things that's it's it's my absolute favorite thing i mean technically playing drums is my favorite thing but i don't really get to do that too much anymore so this has kind of taken its place well i heard that you play drums and set yourself to think about food while you were drumming is that right (laughs) yeah i mean like when like when i was in touring bands or bands that were very active and recording stuff like that like it's kind of one of those things where you always kind of want the thing that you're not doing so when i would be playing at a show or recording or whatever like my thought process would be like all right i'm making a gnocchi like uh, i'm mixing the dough i'm i am making sure that that it's uh, nice and airy if i press my finger into it will it come back like now i'm boiling it you know so i've definitely like I've said that, and a lot of people might think it's bullshit, but it's, it's not, you know, because I love cooking. Did you imagine, like, lots of pots and pans in front of you? <laughs> no, 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 not really. Like, <laughs> yeah, although I have had many people over the years be very annoyed at my constant tapping on things, which usually gets a little more extreme during phases where I haven't been playing drums in a band. So Before we started this, I heard you tapping, I was actually very impressed with how on time it is as a record producer (laughs) (laughs) i mean i probably do it when like i'm not sure what to do too so (laughs) cool um so i feel like your at least the history of your cooking career is very interesting could you just walk us through it a little bit sure i'd always really really been been into food cooking or just like into like watching food television that kind of thing like there was a show called a great chefs that was like i think i want to say it was like late 80s early 90s stretching to the late 90s where it was this like it was on pbs i believe and um it was just these like crazy french chefs with like tall hats making these ridiculous like uh kind of like foie gras emulsion this and that and uh kind of talking talking through it for this tv show there would the thing that i always really kind of loved about it but they left the uh kind of like ambient background noise of the kitchen like the kind of clanking and the sound of the hoods and stuff like that. And it kind of like made it more fun, I guess. Um, Cause it wasn't, it was kind of like, you know, this was the kind of thing where a producer went in and started filming these uh, chefs who weren't used to being on camera. So like they were just kind of doing what they're normally doing. And then all the like clanking and sounds in the background, they left in there. And then there was also this amazing um, narrator for the show who had kind of like a new Orleans accent. And uh, it was this woman, I, I don't remember her name, but it always, it kind of added to it. And there was kind of like this weird sort of jazzy classical music playing in the background, but uh, always totally, totally loved it. And then basically spent most of the 90s just jerking around, being in kind of stupid bands. And then in 1999, uh, the band I was in at the time, Skull Control, we had broken up. I was living in Washington, D.C., and I found an ad in the D.C. city paper. And it said, uh, pastry assistant wanted. And it, there was just a fax number. 
and that was it. And for some reason, I decided it was a good idea for me to try to get this job, even though I had never really cooked any desserts ever. And I didn't even really care about desserts either. Like maybe like making cookies with my grandmother or something like that. But anyway, it was almost like a prank. So I remember very specifically because I had just also um, finally graduated from college with an English degree. So went home, wrote this, you know, very flowery letter and uh, printed it out and then walked up to Mount Pleasant Street in Washington, D.C., where I lived at the time, to the, uh, I don't know what, it was like a, a notary fax place. And I took the piece of paper, gave it to the guy, and he faxed it to the number. It didn't say what the restaurant was. It didn't say anything at all. It just said pastry assistant wants. Basically, they called me back, which I thought was strange um, because I had no experience at all. And it turned out to be basically the best Italian restaurant in Washington, D.C. at the time. A place I'd never been to because I wasn't going to fancy restaurants. You know, I was a broke punk kid, you know. So. Best Italian restaurant in Washington, D.C. as somebody who spent time in New York. I imagine it's pretty bad. I spent a lot of time in both. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I'm going to say that when I started working at this place, it was called Galileo. In 1999, it was a phenomenal restaurant. I have no idea how it compared to New York restaurants at the time in terms of like technique or ingredients or anything like that. But when I started working there, I was kind of like clobbered over the head with what was going on there. And like, I was completely out of place. I didn't belong there. Um, I was vegetarian at the time. So had I gotten a job on the line cooking, you know, uh, duck and lobster and veal stock and stuff like that, I probably would have lasted like a month or maybe even less a day. But because it was a pastry job, I got this lower level pastry job and because I was vegetarian, it didn't involve dealing with any meat. I kind of like fell into it that way. So question, I had this preconceived notion. I mean, as someone who loves to cook myself, but I'm, I'm shit at any kind of, of baking because I'm not precise enough. I am the kind of person that just like throws shit into a pan or whatever and, and kind of figures it out based on what I know the flavors are in my head. And I assumed that there was going to be some link between your, you know, the precision needed to drum and the precision and, you know, dedication and, and accuracy needed to create desserts in that way. But then I read something that you said that you kind of just look at recipes as a starting point and just kind of, you know, will go rogue with that stuff. Has, is that, is that still your approach, you know, when you're making pastries and things like that? I know it's not your main thing right now, but you know, did you always kind of wing it or, or were you a super precise person (laughs) at one point and then went further after that? No, no, I've never, ever been a precise person for anything, not for playing drums and not for cooking ever. I pretty much do everything by feel. It actually drives a certain kind of a certain kind of person that comes to work at Superiority Burger that expects a certain amount of precision um, that's not there. It drives them completely crazy, and then they don't last very long, and which is fine because you know it's, it's totally fine. You know, but yeah, like uh, e- even something like uh, like making ice cream is one of my total passions. I love everything about it. I love starting from zero, where you're taking a bunch of stuff and then making something, putting it in a machine. And the thing that comes out is way greater than the sum of the parts that went in. And it's all about texture. It's about flavor. It's about um, balance. Um, And it really requires a certain amount of precision to do it. But even to this day, to this day, meaning like today, 
when I was making ice cream today, I just still kind of wing it. And that was kind of the same when I was playing drums too. Like, especially I would always try to do things that I couldn't do. And then a lot of times those would get captured on recordings and especially, especially in a live situation or whatever, you know, um, where it's almost like I just want the whole thing to be done with so I can be done with it and be like, all right, cool, that's done. So <laughs> it's, it's weird because like if it's a song you're playing live, it's done, nobody cares, you know, at least most bands I've ever been in. The song's done, nobody cares. Um, but like with cooking, like especially something like ice cream, like it's done now. Now is the time that it really needs to get judged. Did you do a good job? Did you make it work? Um, and you know, sometimes it doesn't work and then we make it again. So when you're cooking for friends and things like that, do they know like, oh, listen, Brooks is cooking. There's like a 40% chance this could be garbage and there's a you know 60% chance it's the best thing you've ever had. I absolutely never cook for friends, unless you consider our <laughs> unless you consider our, our regulars the friends. Um, I have lived in New York since 2006 in like four different apartments, and I have only cooked at home maybe six times, like totally, because I've always been working. And so there's not a lot of like, hey, come over, it's I'm having a dinner party kind of thing, or, or like even like, oh, I'm going to cook for my girlfriend, you know, like pretty much like I'm cooking at work. And then when I come home, I mean, you, if, if this was video, I could, you could take a look in my refrigerator. There's nothing in there. So, so you, just to get in here, so you never had any formal training other than on the job? No, 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 it's true. And, and I mean, because cooking is one of those things. It's not like, it's not like being a doctor or a lawyer where you actually have to be schooled at certain things to do it. Like cooking, you can kind of just figure out as you go along. And it really depends on your commitment to the cause. Like if you are completely committed and you're working at a place where you know you can learn a bunch of awesome shit, then it doesn't matter. You can start from zero and learn a bunch of amazing techniques and then take those to your next restaurant and your next restaurant or perhaps if you ever get to open up your own thing. That's a, uh, yeah, but I've not, I never went to culinary school. I actually don't recommend anyone going to culinary school. I think it's a waste of money. Um, at the same time, if you're, if, if your goal is to like learn as much as possible on the job at good restaurants or not even necessarily good restaurants at restaurants where you know, you can learn things that you want to learn. Um, you're probably going to work for no money. So like you're not, your lack of getting money as opposed to you're paying a bunch of money for school for cooking is kind of, to me, it's kind of the same. It all really, it really depends on your motivation as a person. You know, if you, it's something you really want to do, then you can make it work. You're, you're probably not going to starve. In the well, end, right? well, no, I mean, that's the thing. You work in a restaurant, you, you're never going to starve. So you're better off than a media intern. <laughs> I found this review and I wanted to bring this up because it seems appropriate for what you're saying here. And it's, it was in food 52 and it was from Bill Buford. It was a review of fancy desserts and, and I'll just read it. A section here. Is it a cookbook? Yes. Mainly. Sometimes. The photography sucks deliberately. The color is washed out. The photography is amazing. It does not suck. It's the anyway, opposite of food porn. It's what you go to if you just wasted an afternoon watching the Food Network. But is it a cookbook? There's no chapter of pastry kitchen basics, which is curious in a dessert book, except that here there is no basic anything. The recipes come at you every which way. They are sometimes complete. Some of them probably work. They are all nothing less than very idiosyncratic. And yet they are also somehow not arty. Maybe it's not a cookbook. Now that was a positive review. I know. That was, I, I, I like that. I mean, especially, 
Except for the photography part, because I think the photography in that book is amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, what what it reminded me of is if you see early reviews of, like, the Ramones, when, like, rock critics don't know what to make of it, and they're kind of like, what is this? It's great, but I don't get it. It doesn't compute. And knowing someone like Buford, who, like, in the beginning of the article, he's talking about, oh, I was away in Europe, and I came back, and blah, right, blah, blah, right. and all that stuff. And he's coming at it, obviously, from a very different place. He's coming at it from the high-end, if not white tablecloth, at least very entrenched culinary world and you put out a cookbook that is almost like a zine you know so so how much of that was a middle finger to you know to to that culinary world or how much of it was just an expression of identity it's funny like uh when that book came out because it's kind of like it's like sort of memoir sort of cookbook the photography and design was specifically i specifically chose jason fulford and tamara shopson to do that because they had done the the Shopsons cookbook, which I loved. Um, and I was like, Hey, I want to do this. So it was like, kind of like a, I just, I, it felt like the, I, I love their aesthetic, you know, in terms of it being, of course, like it meant it was a hundred percent meant to be like an anti cookbook cookbook for sure. And I still, to this day, can't believe that the publisher even put it out because it's pretty stupid and it doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> and people will still come into the, to the superiority burger now and be like, Oh my God, I love fancy desserts. And I'm like, that's amazing. Uh, it was, it was kind of a joke. The whole thing was kind of a joke, except it wasn't a joke at all. And you know, that's, that's definitely that, that idea is something that I 100% learned from like being in born against, you know, this thing is a complete joke, but it's also deadly serious. You know? That's fascinating. Cause I did see, you seem to have a complicated relationship with cookbooks. I mean, there, there was that bone app article that you wrote about cookbooks and all that. And looking at that as, and I've always felt similarly that a lot of cookbooks are marketing ploys. They're, they're these books that are written that no one's going to actually, you put it on your shelf in your kitchen and it makes you look like you know how to cook. It, it, no one's opening that up for inspiration. And, you know, I wonder your relationship, but when you, when you did, you know, fancy desserts or even more so when you did the superiority cook, uh, burger cookbook, were you focused on making something that people would actually use? Fancy desserts. I didn't really care at all. If anyone ever used it, like I said, even to this day, when people are like, Oh, I did the carrot cake recipe. I'm like, Oh my God, it worked. You know, like, <laughs> as, as opposed to the superiority burger cookbook which was meant to be a documentation of the things we had done up until that point um when superiority burger opened the same publisher that put out fancy desserts kind of uh, approached me and was like hey do you want to do a cookbook and like we had just opened it was way too soon to even consider it but i was kind of all wrapped up in like the the hullabaloo or whatever so i was i agreed to it it was definitely way too soon for that to come out um, or to that for the, us to even try to start that at that point. Um, I'm proud of what came out of it because it is definitely like a documentation of a particular 2015 to 2016-ish era, time frame when the restaurant had first started and we were kind of going crazy in this tiny little space. Um, since that book has come out, I think, uh, I think we probably figured out we have three to 400 new recipes that could be like a series of other cookbooks, but I also decided I will never ever do a normal cookbook ever again. So, so I mean, you've worked with some pretty successful chefs that they weigh in on like these decisions that they give you advice around, like you should do this to a cookbook. You shouldn't. Honestly, like nobody really knew what I was doing at the time. <laughs> so it kind of, when people that I knew professionally were like, oh, you're doing a cookbook, I, they kind of had an idea in their head of what it was going to be. And then when Fancy Desserts actually came out, a lot of them were just like, oh, uh, cool. Like, <laughs> 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 
like completely like like oh well this is useless but i like that you know i, I like that but it, it, so you had the same publisher and the second one they were like you can't compare rain and blood to panacotta in this one is that right <laughs> well twofold um they were like why don't you do a normal cookbook and i was like um i totally want to do a normal cookbook you know <laughs> Um, and then also for the, for the superiority burger cookbook, it was supposed to just be more like, like I said, straight documentation, like, you know, not to get like cheesy here, but like, I think of something like flex your head. And like, that is like a fucking total documentation of this very particular scene that was happening in Washington, DC at a very particular time. So as we were like compiling the recipes and writing the, the intros and all that stuff, I was like, Oh, this is cool. Like, you know, this is, this is exactly. And, and it was, wasn't meant, it wasn't supposed to be particularly like a middle finger or ridiculous or in, in any way. Like it was supposed to just be like, this is what we're doing. But I mean, are, cook, are cookbooks like the LPs of the food world? Like when you go see the live act, is it really the same thing? Of course not. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I most mean, people don't realize that. Okay, all right. Maybe <laughs> the Superiority Burger book is a little bit of a middle finger, too. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, specifically, like, the burger recipe, it's all on one page. It looks very simple. But then people would come up to me and go, oh, I, tr I tried to make the burger recipe. It took eight hours. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like that's it? You know, <laughs> but I, it, the recipe was specifically written with like verbs and adjectives and nouns to make it seem like it might be easy, even though if you really read those words, it's definitely not. And then that's the first recipe in the book. And then there's 90 other recipes that have nothing to do with veggie burgers, which I also love because... You know, it looks like a bit, like a book of different veggie burger recipes, and there's only one, and then that's it. So with that, so it's eight hours to make this burger. You're not surprised. You are talking about how your cooking is a little bit of an approximation. So many of these chefs, like especially like that El Bulli Noma thing, of that they're like developing these science experiments of food. That's not. I when I taste your burger, I hear taste craftsmanship, but it's really exactness is, and replication of that is not a concern for you? No, of course it is. Of course it is. Like, you know, like we, we spend a lot of time like making sure that when we make something like the burger, that it's very uniform. And the initial like research and, and developing of the recipe is a lot more like kind of scattered. Um, but once it becomes a thing that we have all the time, which is kind of a very small amount of items on our menu, like most of the stuff, it's like only five or six things that are always there. Like the rest of the stuff just kind of comes and goes depending on what we find at the market or what we feel like making that kind of thing. So, but yeah, the, the main kind of like meat of the menu is, you know, pretty precise. And I have an amazing cook named Edith and she has been with the restaurant for five years, you know, almost since the beginning. And, you know, we trained her to make the burger in a certain way and she is actually incredibly precise. So it never actually changes. And in fact, since the shutdown, I decided to kind of like fuck with the, the burger recipe a little bit, which definitely kind of annoyed her <laughs> at least in the beginning. <laughs> Because I, I refused to actually, like, write down what we were doing. And it, it, it was probably about a month and a half of me just, like, dumping things in, in, in containers. And then eventually she sort of looked at me and was like, all right. And then we actually got out of scale and weighed everything out. And, like, you know, for the past two months, she's been making the, the same thing. And it's always the same. And 
it's probably better than when I made it. So, so, so we were we were going from DC. What happened after you got that first job with VFX machine? How did that work out? Um, worked there for about a year, and it was like I said, it was an amazing restaurant. Learned all sorts of crazy techniques. Um, for desserts, because I was a pastry assistant, uh, making ice cream, making, um, you know, pas de choux, all these different things that I never, I didn't even know, like, uh, like we made, you know, creme anglaise. And I didn't even, I'd never even seen that word before. So I, just, I thought, like, if I looked at it, it was like creme on glaze, you know, like, I didn't, I didn't know any French or anything. So I learned all these things that I didn't even know I wanted to learn about. But I did. And it was kind of a, a thing where it kind of changed me as a person because I got to like learn this craft that I wasn't even planning on learning, specifically this dessert. Because before, you know, it was like I'm making vegetarian food for my friends, you know, nature's burger casserole. So I was like kind of thrust into this world where I was this weirdo because at the time I was 27 which was pretty old to be working as like a person just starting in a restaurant. I mean, granted, at the time, things have kind of flipped now where like sous chefs and chefs that work in restaurants are, are much younger. But when I started working in the late 90s, the, the people in charge were actually kind of old, like they were in their 40s and they were mean and they were like, like bitter and, <laughs> and totally fucking nuts. Um, but in terms of in the like pastry world, there was the pastry chef and all of her cooks were people that were like 20 and I was 27, which doesn't seem that like that much of a difference, but at the time it kind of was. And I was really quiet and I was really shy. And I just kind of like learned from the pastry chef how to do these things. And like, it really stuck with me in this way where I like, I was sort of confused because I was this guy who was just had been in a bunch of bands for most of the nineties. And all of a sudden now I'm making super high end, fancy, fancy desserts for in, in like, unfathomably rich people, you know, which everything about it felt wrong, except at the same time, I was really having a good time. I mean, you were used to mean and crazy, though. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, had that, you had that advantage, you know, like someone who's 20 might not have had those those calluses on there. Yeah, uh, for sure. Right. Yeah. So wh where'd you go after that? Well, I had met a friend of mine who I'm still friends with today. His name is Scott. And he, these things happen in restaurants where people will come work for like a week or a month because they need a job and they're going to do a, something else. And like their chef talked to your chef and that kind of thing. So Scott just showed up one day and worked for like a month. And I kind of hit it off with Scott. And, you know, like my girlfriend at the time had a dog named Gigi. and. Scott was like, oh, Gigi Allen? And I'm like, you know, at the time, like something like talking about punk rock or anything subculture at all in a restaurant seemed insane. Especially Gigi. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so I was like, what? Technically, he wasn't named after Gigi Allen. But anyway, but that kind of like started our friendship. And he was like, oh, you should. Um, I'm leaving here in a couple of weeks. I'm going to open up a uh, an Etruscan restaurant around the corner. And I'm like, an Etruscan restaurant? You mean like? ancient like italian food like what the fuck even is that I was like why would someone do that and he's like yeah it's pretty cool so <laughs> i would take i would spend my days off going to hang out with scott after he had left and he and we would you know hang out and we would talk about the dicks and 999 and stuff like that and then he looked at me one day and he's like hey there's a ritz carlton opening up right around the corner from the restaurant where you work 
I bet you could get a job there because you'll make more money. And as someone who had never really cared about money, all of a sudden I was like, huh, well, maybe I should write them a letter too, the same way I wrote a letter to get this job at this restaurant. Anyway, so he kind of pushed me towards that and I did it and I got the job at the, at the hotel. Um, having no idea what I was about to get myself involved with. Um, and then when I finally gave my notice at the restaurant and told uh, Lori, the pastry chef, and then also the head chef at the restaurant, I was like, yeah, I'm leaving to go work at the hotel. They were like, fuck you. Hotels fucking suck. Why would you do that? Like, that's, so, that's bullshit. It's not even a job. It's fucking, it's bullshit. Like, like you work at a restaurant and like, it's a fucking career and you're going to work at a hotel, you asshole. Like, they were so upset that I was like, I wonder if there's any like basis in this. And they were totally right because working in a hotel totally sucks. So. <laughs> and I, mean, I think I made $1 more an hour. So it wasn't really that much different. But yeah, so worked at the restaurant, worked at the hotel, worked at another restaurant, kind of like worked my way around for a while and then ended up in Los Angeles in like the early 2000s. So did you go there for a job or for other reasons? What was the what was the plan? Did you have a plan? I've almost never had a plan for anything. But in this case, I had a very specific plan because I moved to Los Angeles to be in a band that uh, some people that I used to be in a band with we're starting up a band and they're like, oh, you should move to L.A. and be in a band. And I was like, oh, I kind of have, I kind of, I'm, I'm living in D.C. I kind of have a good job. Like, why would I do that? And then went out to Los Angeles for like kind of like a three, four day vacation. We kind of practiced. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm moving to L.A. But, <laughs> which is weird because. Hold on, hold on. These are the same people you quit college for. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So like move, basically moved to LA, but because I had kind of like been like com completely enclosed in this restaurant world for probably two years at this point and knew all of a sudden knew all these things about other restaurants and other cities and uh, other chefs and other techniques. I made a plan that was kind of like I talked to myself and I was like, okay, I'm absolutely 100% only moving to LA to be in this stupid band. However, I'm also going to get a job at this restaurant where I've heard very good things about this place. And um, eventually did end up working at the restaurant. It was called Campanile, um, you know, one of the great restaurants of Los Angeles at that time. Um, and it was funny, too, because at the time I was living in Washington, D.C., and if you were like person working in a restaurant and you wanted to go to further your career to learn more and develop, you would go to 100%. There was like no other option. And instead, I told my bosses, I was like, hey, I'm moving to L.A. Of course, I never said I was moving to L.A. to be in a band because I didn't even want to start that conversation. So I said, I'm moving to L.A. to go work in a restaurant. And they were just like, you're crazy. Why would you go to L.A.? It's like a backwater. Like, go to New York or, or stay here, you know. So um, the restaurant where I ended up working in L.A. Um, learned a million different things, techniques, in a way kind of started my way of um, kind of like shooting from the hip and like just kind of cooking things, even though they were desserts, because the the restaurant, while it was very precise, it also allowed for a little leeway in the way you're the way that we cook, which really spoke to me. And it was, you know, like a cool place to work, like where we would do things. For instance, we, we made like a black currant ice cream. And the only instructions I remember on making the black currant ice cream were like, make it look like Barney. Like there, were, <laughs> there was, there were no measurements. There was none of this. It was just like two bowls, pour this together, pour this together. Once it looks like Barney, you're good. 
And I'm like, how the fuck could this possibly work? And it, and it worked because the people that were making it really understood what they were doing. And I was like, fucking shit. Like, all right, I'm going to, this is what I need to know. This is, I need to hang out here and figure this out. So, so is that typical though? Did you just luck out and land at the right place there to, to find a technique that fit with you? Kind of a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and, and again, I was, you know, I was in a band at the time and also working at this restaurant, never told anyone I was working at the restaurant. Like, you know, there'd be like, you know, because now all of a sudden I'm in Los Angeles and like everyone's in a band. Um, everyone is an actor, like everyone's trying to make it. And I, I moved to LA to be in this really stupid band that nobody cared about. And nobody in the band even wanted to like make it or anything like that. It was just like, we did it because it was something we all felt we needed to do, you know? Um, so never, ever, ever mentioned I was in a band. If I needed to go do a recording or like take a weekend to go on tour, I would always say something like, I have some family stuff to do. I'll be, is it okay if I take these <laughs> days off? And that's like a, even taking three days off in a row in like the early 2000s at a restaurant was like this insane thing that no one understood. They're like, what do you mean you're taking three days in a row off? That's, that's fucking crazy. And I was like, I'm sorry, it's this family thing I have to do. And then I was like, <laughs> I was like, listen, I will work the next 25 days straight to make up for it. And they would make me work the next 25 days straight. And it was fine. So, so when did you find the fax number for the restaurant you wanted to work at? <laughs> I mean, like I said, it was just like I ended up after L.A., band broke up, moved back to D.C., ended up moving to New York. It was just a series of like kind of like bouncing around at different places. OK. At what point did you land somewhere where you're like, this is great. This actually makes like like when you quit college to join Born Against, was there a, a chef moment that felt that way? <laughs> Uh, for better or for worse. <laughs> oh my god! But when I when I quit college to join Born Against, the only way I could explain it to my mom was the 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 T shirt. It was kind of like a Tom of Finland thing of like two cops with like dripping dicks. Like I was like, yes, I, was like, I, yeah. I believe I believe uh, Bagat Society opened at the show where those were debuted, and I would say a hundred fourteen year olds' parents threw that out immediately. Right. <laughs> I very specifically remember hiding it from her for a while, and then, and then of course, you know, at one point I just threw it in the laundry, and she. But my mom was pretty cool, so she never was like, "What is this?" Um, she just she would wash it and fold it and put it with the rest of the laundry. So, um, but that was the thing where, like, I was like, "I'm quitting school to join this band, and they all live in Jersey City, and I'm going to drive up once a week and practice." And then I had the shirt and I was like, this is the band. And she was just like, okay, all right, all right, great, you know. But in terms of like a restaurant situation, like it was never like, I never actually got to like be in. When I got to join Born Against, they were like 100% my favorite band of all time at the time. So it was incredibly special for me. I was also 20 years old. When I moved, finally did move to New York, I ended up working at this restaurant, Del Posto, kind of like I didn't really belong working there because it was a very big restaurant with a very big staff. And I previously had only, you know, worked in kind of smaller restaurants and I was never really in charge of that many people, maybe one or two, but not 10. Um, but I impressed the, the chef there with the, the food that I made and they hired me. So, and I ended up staying there for like seven years. Um, so you were immediately in charge of a bunch of people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it was, uh, I mean, I had, I had had other like kind of like managerial pastry chef jobs, but not in New York city. And we're talking like small restaurant with a couple of people. Whereas like somehow like talked my way into this job at this enormous restaurant and all of a sudden had a staff of like 10. 
which was, you know, that was definitely a an insane learning curve about how to deal with other people, for sure. Looking back on your on your Del Posto times, do you see that as a natural progression to get to, as antithetical as it seems, getting to Superiority Burger? Or do you see it as like your Brian Baker in Junkyard moment, where you're like, that was the <laughs> left turn? <laughs> well done. Well done. Oh, nice, nice, nice. I haven't actually listened to to junkyard in a long time i wonder if i still have i'll cop to that i really enjoyed that when i was 12 (laughs) (laughs) i think it was this thing where the same way that each job that i kind of procured along the path of my culinary careers stupid and pretentious that sounds like that just seemed like another challenge like well all right i tricked them into giving me this job i guess i should make it work you know and stayed there for a while but the thing that really started and it's weird because this started at the beginning and then also like near the end the thing that really always bummed me out about working in these super fancy restaurants was that incredibly exciting to make to get these incredible ingredients from the farmer's market or these incredible things that are imported from all over and this is i mean i'm talking about this is still only dessert at this point um ethically sourced chocolate and almonds from sicily and all this crazy shit and then spend all this time, you know, you're working 50 to 70 hours a week. You never get to see your friends. You never get to, like, hang out or go to shows. or. But you're, you're like, committed to this craft. And then the thing that initially when I first started working in the late 90s was, like, the end result of this is just a bunch of rich people get to eat this. And that's it. And that sucks. And then I kind of like, after a few years, like that just seemed like, well, that's just normal. That's just, that's just what this life is like. And then kind of near the end of working in this big fancy restaurant in New York City, it kind of like started to like nag on me again. Like, can't believe I'm spending all this time and like training all these people and making these things and only like insanely rich people get to eat it. That sucks. Didn't you feel that way playing John Hiltz's house though? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Sorry. Uh, You don't have to answer that. (laughs) Just glad we got a John Hiltz dunk God here. Actually, uh, Universal Order of Armageddon and Avail, there was a a late season snowstorm in 1993, like kind of like mid March or something. And we we were, both of our bands were playing at Hiltz's house. And then there was this huge snowstorm and we got stranded there for like, I think like four days. Um, And it was just all of us. And, you know, there's no internet. There's nothing. It's just basically just Hiltz making us tempeh for like four days. (laughs) 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 So maybe that, that maybe that was, Maybe watching him make tempeh was like kind of part of uh, my uh, early culinary career. As I say, that that should be your origin story right there. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So, so touching upon that, I mean, you know, I feel like especially when food culture started becoming more popular to the mainstream and especially, you know, going hand in hand with cocktail culture, I was working in marketing when, when all that stuff started getting more popular. And I noticed that there was a lot of mixologists and and chefs that were kind of playing off of this counterculture cred, you know, they'd have sleeves or they, you know, they'd, they'd look, they'd look the part, but they weren't actually, you know, you couldn't talk to them about music the way we're talking about music, or at least our niche of that music. Is there any conflict when every interview you do is like, Oh, he's punk rock. He was in bands you you've heard of and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, is that something that gets tiring to you after a while? Is it just like, you know, or is it just such an ingrained part of who you are? Do you ever feel like, well, I don't want to be lumped with those posers? Ah, that's funny. Well, no, it's funny you say that because even like agreeing to do this podcast, I was like, oh God, 
like, I don't want to talk about this shit again. And then I listened to some of the previous podcasts and I was like, yeah, I think they're going to kind of get it. Like, cause like <laughs> other things I've done, like this interviews or whatnot, it's usually like, Oh, you were in a punk band. <laughs> and then it's kind of like silence. And, but no one's like, no one's like, okay, which Red Sea song off of Flex Your Head is your favorite? Okay. <laughs> tell me, tell me right nice. now, you know? Um, so like maybe like there were, there were certain points like it, like from the time that I discovered Maximum Rock and Roll and started ordering records online, like when I was still living at my mom's house up until the point that I started working in restaurants and all that kind of thing. Like even like going back and forth at times throughout the years, like it's just kind of like, it's just who, what I've been and what I've done or whatever. Like, and I don't particularly want to like play it up or anything. And it, if it kind of comes out or like kind of vomits out at times, like in little spurts, like I, I guess I'm fine with that, but because it's kind of like part of who I am, like it, it, like joining Born Against and meeting Sam and Adam when I was 20 years old, like truly developed like how I look at the world. So at times, yes, it, it gets a little tiring to try to kind of be like, yeah, I'm the punk rock pastry chef. <laughs> you know, like, that's fucking stupid. So, so right now, looking at the, the media that you do do, it kind of splits between, like, the music hipsters of, like, the pitchforks and vices of the world and, like, the foodie hipsters of the world when it comes to, like, Grub Street and Eater and, and all that. What's more painful? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's all pretty painful. Like, I... <laughs> it's, it's funny too like uh, when fancy desserts came out i didn't it was weird because like i was writing this book that was all about me like all about me and stuff i had done and food i had cooked and like bands i had been in and blah blah blah, blah you know like and then it came out and i i was like wow i didn't really want to tell anyone this and like all of a sudden it's in a book that anyone can read you know so it's just kind of like i mean at this point like i feel very kind of comfortable in my own skin at superiority burger and the restaurant it's very small um it's very strange and it's it's that way because of what came before so i'm totally fine with that like you know there we've had offers to expand it into a chain and do this and that and i've actually even you know, had conversations with very, very wealthy people about like doing stuff like this. And then I always chicken out at the last moment or like do something stupid. So they never call me back. Um, <laughs> so it's not going to be like is, Defaro where they try and open like one in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, technically we have one in Tokyo now, but that's, that's a little, that's a different situation. So. All right, we're going to get to that in a minute. I'm going to stop the conversation for one second and tell you, if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. Want to help out with some gas money to get us to the next show? We have merch and more at killedbydesk.com. Now let's get back to the show. So wait, speaking of mixology, uh, I see you have a ripple gelato. Have you ever tried to make champipple gelato? <laughs> I, I actually have no idea what that is. <laughs> oh, you, you got to watch this. There's two episodes of Sanford and Son. Ooh, I believe ooh. the first. There's way more rep- episodes than two episodes of Sanford and Son. <laughs> no, with champipple highlighted. So I believe the first one, he, uh, Fred makes it uh, with ginger ale and ripple but then they they, they get to fly first class and he makes it with champagne and ripple okay and well can i patrick can, from, just can so I, you know patrick from dillinger 4 has perfected the recipe oh yeah yeah because so that's, his that's, recipe and he's a he's a he's a bartender right, right. Uh, his was i believe strawberry champagne blue hawaii boone's farm 
uh, a can of beer and crushed up Adderall. Um, <laughs> and I, and well, I watched him mix it in a very large Tupperware and a bunch of kids drank it. And then the second batch, he ran out of Adderall and replaced it with Scope. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> Try that one that in Tokyo first, Brooks. Wrong. <laughs> Minty. <laughs> Minty first. So, I don't know. That might be a good gelato. I mean, if I may interject, like, uh, I don't know how Adderall, once it's like ground up, affects the uh, texture or um, crystallization <laughs> of a gelato or a sorbetto, but um, alcohol definitely keeps it from freezing. So I would have to reduce the ripple and kind of like remove some of the alcohol. And then is it really ripple ice cream at that point? Because we have really extracted, the, the flavor has evaporated. So, um, but at, at any rate, I think Stanford I read this as a Dave Arnold article once. I, I, think, I, think, I think it would look like Barney. At some point. Well, as long as it looks like Barnes, <laughs> that's, that's all I care about. So talking about going back to, to media and all of that, how much do you credit slash blame Sam for for building the myth of Brooks when it comes to that dessert psycho article? <laughs> I love Sam. I love I, I Sam is a genius. I love his writing. I was really, really excited at the time that he was working for Vice and wanted to like write this thing. And he actually came out and like hung out with us in the kitchen. Um, and Sam, Sam is the best. Sam doesn't really cook or really know anything about food. So I kind of like that too. And it was really kind of fun to like have him be in this situation that was completely foreign to him and like see what he would do with it. It happened. That was, that was probably like 11 years ago at this point. You know, um, I don't, I don't think one way negatively or positively about it at this point, like it's just kind of something that happened. Maybe there are things in it that I'm kind of embarrassed by, or maybe there are things in it that I think are totally cool. But like I said, at this point, like my, I feel like my place and my position in this kind of like culinary landscape is just being this fucking crazy person that's at this tiny little six seat restaurant every single second of every day. So. Well, talking about your dedication and reading some of the things that you've written and, and what you've spoken about, you've referenced Ian Mackay a lot. You've also referenced Albini a lot. I feel like that's like a Beatles or Stones. You've got to be one or the other. Are you more Mackay or Albini? Like me personally? Yeah. or like, like how you I run mean, things. Is it, is, uh, it the, is it the benevolent Lord or is it the Iron Fist? <laughs> <laughs> wait, which is which? Which is which? Well, I'd say Albini is probably the more, I mean, I feel like Ian's more inherently likable. Whereas Albini, whether it's a bad rap or not, like definitely gets that taskmaster uh, in, in in more of a negative kind of. Uh... Albini penalizes employees for putting a microphone not at the place where it's labeled. That's a, <laughs> just a perfect example. <laughs> I do too, but you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm joking with that. I actually don't really see it as like a Beatles Stones kind of thing. Like you know, their uh, uh, Albini's approach to recording and like aesthetics i fucking love but also makai's approach to recording and aesthetics i also love you know so um i'm not gonna i'm actually absolutely not gonna take a side on this one i, I, <laughs> I, I fucking apologize because i kind of like you know i love i love big black as much as i love skewball so <laughs> i was just thinking about this uh John Hilt making you tempeh. So you you hung out with Tony Joy for a while. I was in bands. I heard the story that people stayed at his house and there was like a full on compost heap in the kitchen. Is that true? <laughs> That's definitely <laughs> exaggerated. <laughs> Tony had this incredible house, like circa like ninety one to maybe nine, maybe ninety four. It was still around, but it was. Um, there were, he had shows there. That's where uh, UOA practiced. A bunch of other bands practiced there. Um, it was in like planted 
in the middle of this very, very suburban Annapolis, Maryland neighborhood, like almost like kind of upscale neighborhood too. But it was this crazy house that was kind of like falling off a cliff. There was, it was just full of stuff, like full of uh, amps and guitar equipment and all these crazy books. And like, you know, it always, there's a very specific smell that always brings me back to that house. And that's like, <laughs> it's not what you think. It's a uh, burdock root and tamari and uh, brown rice. Like, cause that's what everyone would always be cooking in that house. And like, you know, it was this very, very specific kind of scent. Um, but like, there was like a back bedroom that was kind of like a patio and it was absolutely fully, fully kind of tilting off this basically cliff. And at the bottom of the cliff was like a public pool or like a, even maybe even like a private. I don't remember, but like you could kind of like look out the window of this back bedroom and like there were just like kids swimming very pleasant. It was, a, I mean, it was in a, a kind of, to me at the time, it was a very magical, amazing place. And there was like this weird little parking lot on the side. And like there was a, I think a VW van just full of uh, aseptic soy milk containers that at the time, Tony was really into recycling and, and still is to this day. Like we would go play up in uh, Western Massachusetts and we would take bags of soy milk containers up to Massachusetts to this one bin at maybe a health food store or a natural restaurant. I don't remember where those could get recycled. So like, you know, it'd be like the drums and the SVT and the Marshall and then like two trash bags of soy milk. Like this is, this is fucking really important stuff to me. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I know, I just have this, I had this image of that he would climb on top of the compost heap and then jump off, like, at the end of the, at the end of the dinner. And, and at one time, you know, because he used to do that, and we were so annoyed by it, so me and my friend went to go, and we were, like, we were making, like, we were going to catch him, and he got really upset, and he did, like, the Lux interior, we just, he climbed down, like, all disgruntled and old. Ah, no, Tony's, Tony's the best, Tony's, Tony's a, a fucking crazy psychopath, I love him. <laughs> But like, you know, there was like that we had that he had shows in the basement and this like and like people would have to park at like the near the jungle gym and then like walk down like a stretch of uh, of street past these kind of nice houses to get to this place. And then you'd go see like, you know, heroin or Cupid Parkway. OK, uh, we're, we're talking about how you kind of like blindly fell into all this work. But at one point you won a James Beard Award. <laughs> Could you explain what that means and how these awards work? Is there like a CD side to it? You know, like, what's up with that? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, fully CD for sure. You know, like, <laughs> um, yeah, like it's a, uh, it's, I don't even know if it exists anymore. It kind of imploded this year. So, but it, it's kind of like, it was at the time this, I won the award in 2013. Um, the James Beard awards are this kind of, it's kind of like these restaurant awards for like the best chef of this region, the best pastry chef of the entire country, the best, you know, like restaurant design, um, the best baker, these, these kind of things, you know? Um, so yeah, I actually did like win the award, which is still to this day kind of funny because I don't know why or how, like, sometimes people will get nominated for these awards for like nine, 10 years and they'll have to go to these ceremonies and wear a tux and then like not get the award and then kind of be like, and then like, you know, next year, the same thing. And like somebody else wins or whatever. Like I got nominated, made it to the finals and then won the same, all in the same year. And like, none of it really made any sense because I really didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I, I admit that to this day, like, 
like I just haven't been found out that I'm like faking this one. So, but yeah, it's like it's pretty funny. Like it doesn't necessarily make you like you don't get anything from it. Like they give you like a little medal. It doesn't actually re- even really have your name on, which I guess means they could change it at the last minute or whatever. I don't even know where it is. Like I'm sitting <laughs> in my apartment right now, and I, when I moved three years ago, I, it's in a box somewhere. I don't know. Did they invite you to cook at the house too? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I've I've cooked it at the James Beer House many times. Like that's something I've done even at the very first jobs I like, cause there's a certain point, like I said, it's kind of, I don't even know if the whole thing exists anymore because it kind of imploded this summer, but it's kind of seen as this prestigious thing. If you get invited to like cook, but eh, it's kind of not because you have to spend all your own money and do all your own transport pay for all your own transportation. And like, it's kind of shitty inside. And like the, the kit, the kitchen doesn't really work. I mean, the people that work there, like at the house, are absolutely beautiful people, but like the organization is kind of like, eh, you know, but, um, but yeah, no, it's like, a like, and the award I won was for the best pastry chef in the entire country at the time, which was absolutely totally fucking stupid because like, I probably, <laughs> I probably wasn't the best pastry chef in like Chelsea. <laughs> Is there like a tasting? Is there like a judging contest? Like, or do people just pick out thing, names randomly? Like they're doing a Scantron test. It's sort of Scantron-y. It's sort of random. I don't, <laughs> I still to this day don't understand it. Um, the only thing about that night specifically that I remember is they, they give you a, like, if you're, if you're up, if you're in the finalists and you're, and you're, you're going to be one of the people that's sitting in the Lincoln Center auditorium and, you know, they're going to call out your name or whatever. They send everyone these lists of questionnaires or whatever. And, and they always have it. They had a theme for each um, award ceremony each year. And, and the year that I won the thing, I think the, the theme was like food in movies or something. So they sent us this long list of things you had to fill out. And, you know, I, I probably, you know had had a couple drinks and filled it out, you know, like hit send, went back to them or whatever. But they do this thing where like they call out your name and then you have to walk up on the stage and then they put this, you know, little metal around you. Um, And then while you're doing that, there's a narrator kind of like, I want to say almost the same kind of uh, accent as the narrator from the great chefs. Uh, like, it's slightly different like it's like sort of new orleans sort of like this like weird wicked stepmother madonna thing it's like french but not french yes exactly and then <laughs> but the thing that i had one of the questions was like if you could go to any movie at any time what would you see and who would you take you know just like totally stupid or whatever so like i said i probably had a couple of like, like, a, like a beauty pageant exactly it's totally like that you know but anyway so like i remember what i had written down in that thing was i would take Tomato de Plenty from the Screamers in 1972 to see the Baltimore premiere of Pink Flamingos. And I remember <laughs> writing that whole sentence down. And then apparently, because you could, you could you could actually watch this thing online, as I was walking to the stage, the, the Wicked Stepmother Madonna accent narrator said that exact thing and even got <laughs> Tomato de Plenty's name correctly pronounced. It wasn't tomato or whatever. <laughs> So I think I re- that was how I really won, and which I didn't know at the time. But then, you know, like after winning this like ridiculous award, go outside and I have like 80 text messages. But one was from my friend Nicole and she was like, tomato to plenty, you fucking dickhead. You know, like, and I, I was like, all right, I have won. So, you know. so you didn't win the swimsuit competition. You won like the proper etiquette, the diction part. Exactly. Exactly. The diction. For 
Shawshank. Total addiction. Total addiction. Total addiction. I feel like esoteric reference should be totally, you know, should should be something in these awards. So oh, we didn't actually talk about Superiority Burger and like what 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 was the mission there other than to get out of cooking for rich people like what else what else what else is is it all about i'm not vegetarian i i was for a very long time like the whole time i was in bands in the 90s vegetarian maybe like kind of like leaning towards vegan um everyone i knew was like that anyone that wasn't we thought was weird you know i remember like being at a grocery store in richmond in like the the mid 90s and like having like a jar of peanut butter and like you know sorry to bring back up tempeh but a thing of tempeh and then like seeing like someone in front of you and maybe they had a motorhead shirt on but they were buying bacon to be like oh fuck oh, oh, oh. you know like well i guess they're not going to be my friend um so veget- like i've eaten a lot of really really terrible vegetarian food over the year and because i had worked in restaurants only making desserts i never had to deal with meat i never had to break down a lamb or like turn like butcher any sort of meat or like you know take a cow's tongue and rip the skin off and braise like that i was just making cakes and ice cream and stuff like that and while there were eggs involved like you know like i've, I've always had kind of like a, a wiggly area for eggs like they don't I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fine with them i don't use them at the restaurant but i never had to deal with it. so i always like so only the only thing i knew how to cook were, were like vegetable fruit desserts and stuff like that so when i decided i was going to try to figure out a way to do my own thing like i was like well of course it's going to be vegetarian even though like at the time i wasn't and at the time now um but i kind of skew towards vegetarian and that's what i know how to do so that's what the place became i've had opportunities over the years to kind of like turn the restaurant a completely 100 percent vegan restaurant um but I always refuse because I don't want to be pigeonholed into like a very tight category. So even though the restaurant now I would say is like 98% vegan, like I'll still make ice cream with milk because number one, that's, that was my job for almost one. And that's what I know how to do. And vegan ice cream is really difficult. So that's kind of like how it is. And then, like I said, when I bring up like the, the bummed outness of like only cooking for rich people, I always wanted to make sure that we had food that was as cheap as possible. And almost to the point of like self-sabotage at certain points of the five years, um, because, and like I said, n- not to bring up flex your head again, but if it wasn't for flex your head, <laughs> maybe I would have the most expensive, uh, luxurious vegetarian restaurant in all of New York city. But I don't, I have a place where everything is as cheap as humanly possible while still using the best possible things I can find. I go to the green market in Union Square like three, four times a week, even in the winter, you know, and have really good relationships with all the farmers and like, you know, are always trying to get like, oh, what do you have? What do you have now? What do you have now? What do you have now? You know, and I'm in line with the same people that are buying stuff at the really, really expensive restaurants. Um, And there have been times where Superiority Burger hasn't been doing so well financially because it's so small and stuff like snow or rain or literally any bad weather affects us deeply. I'll just spend my own money buying the stuff at the market because it's important to get this really good stuff and then sell it for almost nothing or like even at cost, you know, and like to say that that isn't related to crass and discord records or whatever, like, of course it is, you know, like, and sometimes I like get home at, at night. I'm like, wow, fuck, ah, stupid, you know, but at the same time, like, I love all that stuff. And like, that was part of me becoming who I am. So like, I can't get rid of it. I, I don't think it's just crass. I think that's part of being Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Abotanza. Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know work myself into the dirt just for a principle. 
right? Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I, 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 I mean, you worked at an Italian restaurant. Did that wear off on you? I mean, I, I, mean I, I pretty much worked at only kind of Italian or Italian-ish restaurants the whole time. So, uh, yeah, for sure. So you had you had uh, John Hiltz, who never wears pants, or at least at, up to a certain point, he never wore pants. <laughs> and and then you got all these Italians who are just refusing to you know, back down. I mean, is that normal? Like, do do all, like, good restaurants go to the market in the morning? Or is there just, is there really, like, a, a big machine that they usually use? It depends. It honestly depends. There are, you know, there are people like myself that want to get the most awesome shit all the time. And then there are places where, like, that maybe that's not that much of a concern. Or maybe they don't actually physically go to the market. Maybe they get it from a middleman who buys stuff at the market and sells it secondary. Um, cause there's, there's a, a whole thing with like, when you, when you work in a restaurant, especially if you're like the owner of the restaurant or whatever, you're just completely focused on the place. And some people won't even leave there. They like go to work and they go home and that's it. You know, like, even going to the market or something might be seen as like, you know, that's a waste of time. I need to be, um, but I've been to really, really fancy restaurants where they don't use anywhere near the quality or price range of stuff that I use and sell for seven bucks. And they're selling it for like a hundred bucks. And you know, I always get a little jolt when that happens and like and it doesn't happen very often because it's not like i'm always going to places like that but occasionally you know it's kind of part of the job like hey you know like i'm gonna let's go you know it's like a good staff experiment to like gather up a bunch of people that work at, at superiority burger and be like all right let's go to this super fancy restaurant in midtown and like see what they got um and then especially when what restaurant no oh, i'm not gonna talk shit <laughs> <laughs> but you know like um but it's just like uh i i really enjoy and like that's also a good conversation when we're like walking back to east village it's like you know see like we're using really good shit and selling it for really cheap and everybody can get it and it's totally accessible like that's the thing and like a lot of times you know i tend to get a lot of people that want to work at the restaurant that have either come up in in kind of like different subcultures not unlike punk rock where they'll they'll kind of get it but a lot of times it's really fun when there's like someone who doesn't understand that stuff at all and like you know can't quote dick's lyrics or what era of black sabbath they love but at the same time we're like you're doing this thing and i i'm super into it i don't totally understand it but you know i'll go with it i'm gonna take a guess that you you've kind of built a culture at superiority burger has have you had problem problems with people being able to assimilate into it yeah for sure even like a lot of times it's like sometimes people will come in that like do understand like kind of like the punk rock diy subculture and then but that in like a playing music and putting out records and putting out scenes thing and then taking it to like working 60 to 80 hours a week in a tiny little space all crammed together and making food a lot of times it doesn't exactly mesh um at the same time you know there are there like i said there are people that have nothing to do with that that come in and like totally get it it really kind of depends on the person you said you weren't going to talk shit but in your book, you've got a whole section about best quits, and you don't name any names. <laughs> I want to hear the best quits at Superiority Burger. Um, I mean... Who dropped the ball? Who disappeared? <laughs> it, it, I mean, honestly, like, there... It happens all the time. Like, people... You don't make a lot of money working in a restaurant. Like, I'm the first person that will tell you that because I spent, you know, years working in restaurants making $5, $7, $8 an hour not actually that long ago, you know, so... I kind of, at this point, I'm sort of at peace with it and I understand it. Like if someone's just like, fuck this, I'm out, I'm leaving, this sucks or just disappears. Like I'm kind of, I'm kind of fine with it. Like a lot of times we'll like, especially if we get someone that's working in the restaurant that kind of gets it or whatever, like we just tell them and like, all right, listen, when you do leave, 
either put in your two weeks notice, finish strong. We high five, you know, like we trade records over the course of the next few years. And like, we have a good time or just fucking destroy everything. Like blow up the entire restaurant. Like, like nothing nothing in between, please. Okay. Have you, Brooks, have you had that moment yet where you've had to give the talk that you got when you went to the hotel? Have you had to give that to anyone? Go, don't do that. That's stupid. Like stay here. Has that happened to you on the other side of the table? Oh Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) totally 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 um but like i said i i you know i've been doing this for like we're pushing like 20 years at this point over 20 years so like i understand when people need to leave to go do something like maybe if it's someone that i really really liked like that's usually the thing that's the 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 most crushing to me is like if i really really like this person i really really like their work and i like how they fit into the place and they kind of like out of nowhere just split um that uh, that, like even in the past couple years i've gotten better with that of just like being like okay no i understand I mean, that's just something of like being a boss that like you don't get taught anywhere, like at any school or or working in any way. Like that's just a matter of like repetition of things happen. A lot of people would disagree with that. And I disagree with them. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Charlie, wait, hold on. I've been holding all the Charlie questions. Charlie, do you have any any thoughts? We were suggesting I was suggesting I'm not going to give anyone credit for this, that Rooks try Champipple gelato. <laughs> Would you eat Champipple gelato? Do you, do you endorse that? Endorse what? Champipple gelato. <laughs> <laughs> this is going great. Moving on. <laughs> That's a little secret, Brooks. We just cut Charlie in after the interview. All right. <laughs> He's not actually on any of them. It's like the um, it's like on the uh the, the first born against seven inch where they had to like uh put the crash symbol. <laughs> oh, is that a thing? Wow. I thought you they, I thought you were gonna say they replaced someone completely because I've definitely done that in recordings that I've been on where we're like we're just gonna replace all those bass lines. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. for yeah. sure. Yeah, I've done that a million times. I, I have, so it's it's I totally have, fine. It's cool. <laughs> I I have ghost played on two LPs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hold on, let's go back to the vegan, why you're not a re- vegan restaurant. I feel like vegan restaurants attract people who order off the menu and don't know any different. What do you think about that? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, in general, what? like, Bill, is that because there's meat on the menu? No, I'm saying there's, there's, it's a vegan menu. Like there, there's everything they could eat, except those are the people who can't eat even more than that. Right. Then they're like, oh, well, I have an allergy. Oh, I don't like avocados. So if I go to a vegan restaurant, I can pull like, uh. Waiter on the side and say, "Can you get me the real meat?" <laughs> I, I mean, that's that's the opposite. I mean, that that sounds like Charlie. You're saying that you're one of those people on the opposite side of the spectrum. Well, I mean, for me, part of the reason that I have made sure that the restaurant isn't like kind of pigeonholed in this, like it's a vegan restaurant. I'm definitely on the opposite side of the spectrum. <laughs> Charlie's like when you sort of get a song on the radio, like you're like driving through like a really desolate area and you sort of get meatloaf and then like it cuts out and you're like, I really just want the part where he does the voiceover. You were saying. I was going to say like, uh, I don't know if this answers the question, but this is something that actually comes up at the restaurant a lot because a lot of the people that work in the restaurants actually are vegan or vegetarian or, I mean, we have all sorts of a wide range of people that work in the restaurant, dietarily speaking. But a lot of times if people are vegan, they know that like even just like family meal, staff meal at Superiority Burger, they can eat anything and like they can order anything they want off the menu and grab it and then go eat it, you know, whereas like a lot of other restaurants that they have to like, there'll be, it's a, a lot of conversations like, well, what's the vegan option? And it's usually something kind of like not that awesome. So like, that's kind of the thing for people that are vegan is like they're used to only getting the not that awesome thing at the restaurant while all their friends that eat other things get the awesome stuff, you know? So, um, some that's kind of one of the things that we do at, at the place is like, 
there are things that we make vegan that would actually be a lot easier if I didn't. But because I'm into the accessibility of it and I want everyone to be able to come in and, and get something. I mean, part of that is based on space, too, because the place is so small. Like when we first started, we would have things where we would have, like, say, mozzarella on something. And then, like, we would make a vegan version of it, too. But, like, we ran out of space. So, like, I was like, all right, well, at least for this, it's all going to be fucking vegan. So, you know, um, so it's not necessarily like an ethical thing for me. It's more of like I just I want, you know, like it's like like you said, it's like I'm Italian. I want everyone to be happy. I want everyone to eat a lot of food. I want, <laughs> I want them to come in and like leave and be like, that place was fucking great. You know, like, and if they can't get a certain thing and it's already a vegetarian restaurant, it's like, it's like, it's kind of weird to have a vegetarian restaurant that also isn't kind of a vegan restaurant. So that's just kind of how it's developed over the years. Okay, well, here's a, another way to phrase it. Who's worse, the super rich people or the people go to Superiority Burger as far as, like, asking for ridiculous things? Oh, the thing that I always say about the customer base that we have at the restaurant at Superiority Burger now um, that I love is that, like, most restaurants, like, if you're the owner of a restaurant or the staff of a restaurant, there's probably 95% of the people that come to that restaurant that are just the worst. You don't, you don't want to look at them. You don't want to talk to them. You just want their money. You just want the, their money, feed them, and they, like, get the <laughs> fuck out. Whereas, like, at Superiority Burger, because it's so small and it's so weird, it's, like, flipped. Like, 95% of the people that come are, like, amazing, and I love them, and, like, I want to hang out with them. Like, And maybe there's, like, 5% that that are like have a lot of problems or have issues with this being this way or, or, or whatnot, you know, so it's kind of flipped. And part of that is like kind of the culture that we built there where it's, it's like kind of like a tough love thing when you come to the register, but it's also like, we really like you too. Yeah. Is it, does it go hand in hand with the weird hours? You keep changing the hours up. Did you ever have to throw anybody out? Would you say, did you ever throw anything out? Did you ever have to throw anybody out? Oh, that's a good question. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what? Not that many. And we've thrown out maybe four people total over five years. So, like, uh, I like to, for just being fucking total dicks. Um, and then one person threw themselves out. Like, we'll probably claim that I threw them out, but I absolutely did not. That There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, was there ever a food fight? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely was. That's a good question. Food fight? Yeah, was there a food fight in the restaurant? No, no, never, never, never. Like, it's, it's just like... Because I have no problem throwing a tofu burger. Throwing a tofu That's burger? That's right. Well, you have no problem throwing any burger, Charles. Yes, this is true. You, you <laughs> did make a band off that. <laughs> No, re kitchens are so hard to clean, and like, why would you like have a food fight? Like, have a food have a food fight outside? I guess. I, mean, I don't want to clean that shit. Yeah. So, Brooks, you were, you were talking about how ninety five percent of uh, the audience is good, but I feel like most of the people say, like, especially with music, that the worst part of success is that as you get bigger, you get out of the John Hiltz's basement. That ninety five percent of your crowd is going to suck because what most people appreciate about you is that you're ahead of them and that you can do better than them. Is that not a common thing in food? Wow, interesting. I don't know. That's like a that's a weird one because I was actually thinking about something kind of like adjacent to this the other day when I was walking to the market, which is like my favorite part of the, the morning was when I get to walk to the market alone down 12th Street. I live in the East Village and like keep walking, get to the market. I had just gotten to Union Square and I was thinking about if you're in a band and you like get some kind of success, like when you, if, especially if you start out in like a punk rock DIY scene, like you play in different cities and, or you play in your own city and like everyone that comes to the show are your friends. And then you play in other cities and it can be like, you know, 
as remote as like Minot, North Dakota or something, but like the people that come to that show would be your friends in that city. That kind of, um, whereas like you kind of like, as you're in a band and maybe you get more popular or more successful or start making more money, all of a sudden you're not kind of not playing to your friends anymore. You're playing to this whole new group of people that you don't actually know and maybe don't even like, but all of a sudden it becomes your job. Um, I don't know how specifically that relates to like a restaurant thing, but it's, I mean, it's not, there's, there's a lot of times where like, especially like, you know, when people have like talked to me and tried to be like, well, being in a band is exactly like being in a restaurant. It's like, uh, you know, there's just similarities as, but it's not like, everything doesn't have an exact correlation. Well, you mentioned before that, you know, people try to make some deals with you. Is there an equivalent to selling out? Like, is there is there a reason you ran away from them or you might have self-sabotaged it? Is there something to look internally there? I mean, I just really like having this, like, tiny little place in the East Village where... I can be there all the time and talk to people and kind of do whatever I want. And I'm not like beholden to like anyone with a bunch of money or having a huge amount of rent or that kind of thing. The fact that we've been able to operate for five years at this point without, with only having six places to sit and not selling any alcohol, which is that's how all restaurants survive is selling beer and wine and booze, you know, and we don't have it. I'm not opposed to it, but it's just the place is too small. And, and then also not selling any meat. So like we have a bunch of stuff, against us from the beginning and i don't know i'm i like the fact that it's kind of like small and mighty and it's not like a normal restaurant at all in any way i mean have you been around long enough to make sure you're not a fad like i, I was asking around like what makes you not criff dogs 2015 <laughs> <laughs> well for sure this is something i've thought about like it's like a vegetarian restaurant and like there have been like even like we've been around for five years there have been like little waves where like vegetarian and vegan food has like been really cool or popular and then it goes away and then it comes back again, you know? Um, and I've also had people tell me since the beginning almost that like impossible burgers and beyond burgers are going to put me out of business, which I always think is kind of funny because like that's completely different from what we do. We're doing, it's like actual cooking. It just happens to be vegetarian. Like this is stuff we're getting at the farmer's market and processing it and like, you know, chopping up vegetables takes a lot of fucking labor and time and space you know like whereas like if you're just selling frozen pre-made uh vegetarian burger patties like you know if i wanted to take it easy i could easily do that i could change everything around and like people would probably you know, like sell some frozen french fries people would probably fucking totally dig it so. well let me ask you a question if you don't serve meat or alcohol how do you make the cocoa bin? <laughs> <laughs> I make that for myself in my apartment, yeah, with a nice bottle of Bordeaux. So you're not breaking any laws, then? Is that how that works? Nah, not yet. It's like it's like the it's like the sign in the pizzeria that says this case is for display only. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's one of my favorites for sure. I walked at the pizzeria once and I was like, who would want to buy this case? <laughs> like, I understand it's for display only, but I don't want this case in my house. Why don't you want it in your house? <laughs> What am I going to put in it? My VCR? Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, your VCR. <laughs> will, it, will it fit? Definitely. Let's talk about Superiority Burger Japan. How did that happen? And how is that not related to special funding or someone getting involved? That sounds like a, a huge undertaking just by the distance, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. Like I said, like throughout the years, people have always kind of approached us and been like, oh, let's open a Superiority Burger in Toronto. Let's open one in London. Let's open one in uh, Nashville. You know, let's open one in Los Angeles. And it's always kind of like, eh, because it's usually what 
after you talk for a while, it's like, wow, that sounds like a lot of work and I will make no money. So like, what's the point? And then I remember always saying, I mean, maybe just saying to myself, like the only way that I would ever do this or anything like that would be if we could do one in Japan, Tokyo specifically. And then I don't know if I just willed that from like thinking like that or, or drunkenly talking like that, but eventually it happened. You know, like a, a, about a year ago, we were approached by this amazing dude who's vegan, Japanese guy, and was like, I want to open up a superiority burger in Japan. And there were a lot of like negotiations about we want to do things a certain way, like this and like this. And they eventually... They probably wanted to have sake, right? Uh, they actually do have alcohol there, but it's like... Ah, yeah, they, I, they don't <laughs> have sake, but um, they, uh, I, I'm actually not... Like I said, I'm not opposed to alcohol. It's just the, our current place is too small for it. Um, but you know, I love everything about Japan, um, Wrangler roots toward Tokyo, uh, Osaka, Kobe, like in 2004, it was the, it was the first time I'd ever actually been out of the country at all because every other band I was ever in was full of such difficult characters that we, the Is band, that Sam McFeeders you're talking about? <laughs> that, that's Sam McFeeders and me. So you know, <laughs> I, I include myself in that difficult character, but you, you made it there. And, and, and I feel like when you play a show in Japan, they always feed you after, and it's good. Yeah. That's, the, that's what's missing from punk rock in, in the United States. People just go to Denny's or a diner. Yeah, the food you get in Japan is like, it's like another level. So And, and it's funny because when we actually, I was in Tokyo from basically Thanksgiving of last year until March, like literally a week before the shutdown started. So I spent a good chunk of time kind of getting the restaurant set up. And in a way, like it was weird because I was so excited to be in, in Tokyo, kind of basically living there at that point, and then also opening up my own, this is like my restaurant, having a, a branch in Tokyo that's fucking crazy. But then I met some people there, and they would take me to other restaurants, other places to get food, and I'd just be like, oh my god, it's so stupid, this superiority burger sucks, you know, like, why are we even bothering, you know? Yeah, but did you feel that way playing in a band too? I played in Japan, and every band I played with, I was like, wow, I feel like such a schmuck for even traveling this far i suck so bad for sure for sure yeah 100 <laughs> did you find the japanese brooks no i mean he kind of he kind of found us and like like totally cool cool guy and like just really believes in the the place you know like obviously like covid happening basically as soon as it opened kind of like threw a wrench in the whole works and the olympics were supposed to be in japan this summer and that was like everyone was kind of like everyone in the city like there had been construction going on for years and like the thing like even like that tiny little stupid vegetarian restaurant like you know it all got affected by that the same way that like we all got affected by pandemic you know so i hope place sticks around and lasts because you know i really want to go back there because i love tokyo and i really want to like kind of see what happens like serving this food over there you know and like one of the most amazing things they have this incredible guy osabu and he made a um, menu it, oh, it was only a couple months ago like he made it and like i remember going to tokyo especially the first time and see, going to like fast food restaurants there, like most burger and there'd be this amazing like one page full color menu with like pictures and he made a menu for sb japan that kind of looked like that like it wasn't like it wasn't trying to be cheeky or anything it was just kind of like this informative like menu thing that people could pick up and i was like i was so touched and like kind of like verklempt by the whole thing i was just like holy shit like and then i had a friend who actually like came to do a pickup at sb new york and he was like oh i saw that menu the the like full color menu with all the photos of the sb tokyo and like he's like that means sb superiority burger is officially japanese food <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, I got some fast questions here. Which is the best Woodhaven Thai place? Wait, Woodhaven? Isn't that right? Where in Queens do they have the good Thai places? Flushing. Do you have a favorite? Um, <laughs> drop it over here, Louie. <laughs> <laughs> I am the kind of person that, like I'm, like I said, I'm, I've lived in New York for like about 14 years now, but I'm always at work. So I actually almost never leave where I am currently living or working. I'd have trouble if I worked where you work being as close as I would be to Academy Records. I don't know if you're still a record collector, but I feel like I'd spend all of my money at that place because it's two blocks away. Well, luckily, Academy is only open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday now. So I can't actually uh, go there too often, which is, it's funny you bring that up because I actually went, I went there, when was it, two or three days ago? I got my very first kind of like adult turntable this summer, like an old classic techniques, and I'd never had like a really good turntable ever. And and so I finally like kind of like alphabetized my records and organized them. And then I realized that like my record collection fucking sucked. So I had to like kind of like put it into overdrive this summer. And like, I was like, <laughs> all right, I, I can't just have, it needs to be diversified for sure, you know. But it was funny because I remember going up, like leaving work and, and walking up to Academy, which is only a couple blocks away, which I'd actually never done ever in the entire existence of the restaurant, the five years that it's been open, because basically I get into work and then I work until I lock the door. Unless I was in Tokyo last like last year, I am the person that does the final prep list and locks the door, turns out all the lights. Like that's what I want. Like I I've, I've never been the kind of person to be like, "Oh, you do this, you do this. I'm going to go do something fun." So when I got to Academy the other day, I was it was funny because I told Adam the guy that's working there, I was like, "Feel a little nervous right now because I've only ever done this one other time ever, like left work in the middle of work and not told anyone. And the only other time that I'd actually done it was the day after we opened in 2015. The Melvins played this secret show at an art gallery on Great Jones at like 2 p.m. in the afternoon. I'd heard about it and people had come in the night before and been like, oh, are you going to go to that Melvin's show? And I was like, well, I just, the restaurant just opened. Like, there's no way, you know. Anyway, like I told everyone I was going to the grocery store and instead I, <laughs> I ran as fast as possible to Great Jones and like watched like three songs and it was totally awesome because there was no PA except a vocal PA and it was kind of like watching the Melvins at a house show and it was very fun and I watched three songs and I ran back. Um, but going to Academy the other day. But you were able to go to Tokyo so like you can and say, hey, take over now. Is that a milestone? Yes, 100%. But that was like a new thing as of like 2019 last year. Like up until that point, I had spent every second at the place. Um, I had finally kind of like built up like a culture and a staff at the restaurant where I could leave. And that's why I agreed to do the Tokyo. And then, like I said, obviously came back, COVID happens and everything's different. So now I'm back to being there every second of every day, which is not a complaint. I love every second. Of Assuming everything turns out okay, you're going to feel okay to do that again. Like, it sounds like you're getting out of this. I'm going to work myself to death forever, I hope. Yeah, no, I mean, I, like, I, I, I make jokes all the time. Like, I'm going to fucking die, have a heart attack, and pass out, and that's it on this kitchen floor. And I'm like, that's totally cool. <laughs> what time do you close normally? Well, it's different now because everything is earlier. You know, everything's closed. It's like earlier and earlier. It's like, what city we live in? It's freaking bullshit. It sucks. I hate it. I hate everything about it. Like, but it's an excuse. It's an excuse for people to keep closing earlier. So they can make us like Des Moines, Iowa or something. <laughs> no longer the city that never sleeps, the city that goes to bed early. That's it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can tell you, at least for us, like the reason why we've been closing earlier is because... 
well, number one, the subway doesn't run overnight anymore, so we can't be okay. That's Bob Holden. And then also, like, you know, I have staff that, like, things are weird now, and they want to get home earlier. So, like, I'm, I mean, I'm a fucking psychopath. Like, I'll work until four in the morning or whatever, because I live a two blocks away, but, like, I can't, I'm not going to force my staff to do that. It's fucked up. I went to freaking Georgia Diner the other night, 11.20, and they, they had the doors locked. I was, like, yanking on them, and then the manager came up and yelling at me. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, at least the people from Des Moines are moving out. They're moving out of Des Moines? No, they're moving out of New York. (laughs) I don't want to bum anybody out. Like, do you think there's going to be positive things that come out of this? At least from your point of view? I don't know. I can't imagine anything positive coming out of vegan hamburgers. (laughs) No, I meant COVID. Oh, oh, sorry. It's funny, I agree with this guy that showed up late. (laughs) I only showed up late because I didn't want to be there for the pre-show banter. (laughs) (laughs) I have have some technical questions. So, is there still a thing in high-end restaurants where they don't list any prices, or was that like a 1980s thing? Well, there's some places that still do that. Like, it's like if you can't afford it, you don't you don't ask. Kind of, yeah. I mean, that's like part of the reason that we have the menu that we have. Like, I wanted to make sure everything, at least when we opened, nothing would be higher than nine dollars. Like, even like we didn't even have anything that's ten dollars. Like, and we've had to change that during. COVID especially because there are certain things that are more expensive now. So like we have a sandwich that's like $11 and like it crushes my soul because I I was like, everything has to be under $9 always, no matter what. And they could just give the excuse that it's a shortage. Somebody told me there's a national CO2 shortage. I said, what do people stop stop exhaling? (laughs) Well, you don't have any carbonated drinks though, right? You're at least unaffected by the CO2. Do you you have tropical fantasy? No. I have a special jug just for you, man. All right. (laughs) Don't believe the rumors. (laughs) I got a question. So you invented uh, this uh, meatless hamburger then, right? I didn't invent shit. I came up with a thing that uh, people seem to like. Because in the 80s, I read at White Castle, they said all of White Castle's meat comes from its own plant. So I figured there must be a White Castle plant out there somewhere they make the hamburgers from. They've been doing it for like a hundred years. But botanically speaking. I just want to back up Charlie here. Charlie once convinced a vegan to eat a serving of White Castles. What do you mean a serving? Well, he didn't make it all the way through. Like, he ate the first one. He ate a murder burger. He ate the first one, and then he, I think he bought three. And the second one, he was doing good, and then he looked at it, and it was over. (laughs) I have a White Castle question, though. I I ate White Castle three meals in a row. (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to ask Brooks. You know, as far as um, you know, what you've accomplished both in music and uh, when it comes to, to to cooking, is there anything left on the table that you are just like still waiting to do? Whether it's a restaurant concept or a certain recipe, or even just going on tour one more time, is there anything else that you uh, you want to accomplish? Oh God, I mean, like I love, love, love going on tour, but I never ever want to do it again. So. <laughs> Erase that one for sure. Someday I would like to have maybe a big, a slightly bigger restaurant where, you know, like maybe four people could sit down at the same time. That can't happen right now, you know? Someday, like, I mean, I guess that's sort of like pie in the sky at this point. So, but uh, a lot of times people would like say like, oh, you, you have this place. What are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? And I'm always like, this fucking weird, awesome restaurant in the East Village 
and I love every second of it. Like that's fucking good enough. Like it doesn't, I'm not looking to be like a fucking mogul and and a hundred percent that's like comes from the fucking stupid ass music that I love so much. I mean, that's, that sounds like every, my, one of my favorite places to eat, you know, it's like there's someone who's been there forever and they like what they do and that's why their food's good. Right. Like those are the places that I want to go, like where, you know, like the owner's there and like, they're, it's going to be good. And like you become a regular and there's like, you can get things that nobody else can get. And it's just like, it's not elitist and it's not like for rich people. It's like kind of like forever for, for anyone. So Brooks, I'm going to take back the Ian Mackay, Steve Albini uh, question, and I'm going to I'm going to posit that maybe you're the Mike Watt of culinary. <laughs> so I think that makes sense. I'm cool with that, Jam Mikano. I like that. The amount of ingredients you're using, I mean, it's keeping the cost down while still giving people quality. Yeah, I mean, Minutemen are one of my favorites forever. I'm I am I am totally down with that. That's it, kids. The gig is up. The cops are here, and your mom is going jails, hospitals, and all your friends' houses wondering where you've been. Tune in next week for another fascinating, mesmerizing, and absolutely unmissable episode. And be sure to get on the list and follow the boys on social media at Killed by Desk. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon. And if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. Want to help us out with some gas money and to get us to the next show? We have merch and more at KilledByDesk.com.